Welcome to the Making Soul podcast. My name is Pam Concier. I am the founder of Making Soul on Substack, podcast and blog, and also All Hands Art, which you can find at allhandsart.com. Today I want to talk about seeing and not seeing what's in front of you, imagining, imagining a future that you want to live in, and uh, teaching, because all of these things are related to classes I've been teaching. So I teach some art classes through Portland Community College, through their community ed department. And one of them is a drawing class that meets at the Portland Art Museum. I think I've talked about it before because such interesting conversations. I learn so much in these classes. And people come, it's mostly, well, it's all adults, and um, they come with so much hope of learning how to draw and overcoming mental blocks and things like that, and also with so much anxiety and self-criticism. And, and oftentimes these things are just spoken aloud, usually, and sometimes in the group when we're at the beginning of class, when we're kind of meeting together, or when I talk with them individually as we're going along. So what we do in the classes, we, we meet at the Portland Art Museum downtown, we go to a certain exhibit, we chat in a circle for a while, and then we spend most of the time, like sometimes I'll lead a little demo or we'll do an exercise together, but most of the time there is spent choosing an artwork to draw. And the reason that so much anxiety comes up is that there's an expectation in this setting, unlike some of my other classes that are more freeform, like art journaling or collage painting. In this one, the expectation is that what is going to emerge on your paper is going to look like the thing in front of you, right? Because that's the nature of this kind of drawing. So what I notice, and this is kind of fascinating, is that one of the things that actually gets in the way of drawing well, or accurately, I'll say, is bringing to the drawing all the little factoids that we think we know or need to know about it. So students will often have questions about, you know, I don't know how to do shading, or I, can you teach perspective? And those things are actual things that are often taught in drawing classes, but at the museum when we're using artworks as our models or as our still lifes, if you will, a lot of times those things are not relevant because what if the painting that someone is looking at is a modern cubist painting where they have thrown proportion out the window and the figure barely looks like a figure and None of those rules apply that they might have learned about, or not rules so much as like um, little rules of thumb, I'll call them, where there are things like a human body is normally about seven and a half heads tall, or you know there might be some little things, factoids you could learn about how, how many eyes would fit across the width of a face, things like that. And so students are kind of hungry for learning those things that sadly I'm not going to be teaching them because A, I don't 
totally know them. I don't, I'm not steeped in a lot of traditional technical um, drawing education other than reading Betty Edwards' Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain book, which I love and read and learned how to draw pretty much through doing every exercise in that book about 20 years ago. And also the reason that I don't spend time teaching those things is that the main goal, and I tell my students this on the first day of class, my main goal for them is that we will all learn how to see. And when those little factoids come up or they're looking at a painting and wishing that they knew how to draw eyes, <laughs> I'm trying to, over time, have my students understand that all they need to do is see what's in front of them without clouding it with all the little factoids of what they think they know. So, so it often comes up that students will say, oh, faces are so hard, or I really struggled with the hand, hands are so hard, and that's common, and I, you know, I tend to have those thoughts too, but I'm trying to get myself and everybody else away from this idea that faces are so hard or hands are so hard and just see it as what are the shapes there, what are the dark, where are the dark spots, where are the light spots, what are the colors that you see, and just going with the map of what's in front of you, of here's Here's a dark splotch that's this shade. Next to it, there's a light patch that's this color. And if you if you see eyes and hands and faces as a collection of sh uh, shapes and colors and lights and darks and splotches and lines, it becomes no more or less easy to draw than a chair or a bird. So. The art of seeing is very deceptive, and I think that it would be a valuable thing for us all to take into the world because I notice more and more that there are a lot of people who are not seeing what's in front of them, um, either because they've convinced themselves that you know they should see something else or it's easier or there could be a lot of reasons. And another thing that I want to share today, and I went back and forth about whether to share this, is that recently, like about a week ago, I had a full week, maybe longer than a week, that was very up and down for me emotionally. And I'm usually a pretty steady person. I don't have tons of high highs and low lows. I'm kind of even keeled one would say but for this stretch of time I was when I was teaching usually I felt like I was so enlivened just so alive and on fire from these discussions that I would have and all this learning and I was just loving the teaching time so much and it was so rich that I would just, you know, come away with it kind of floating on air. And then a few hours later, I would find myself weepy and crying or on the verge of crying. And then, you know, I would go back and teach a class or see something or, you know, participate in something else and be really up. And then I would be in tears again. And it was kind of perplexing because it's not really my normal pattern. 
not that I don't cry because I do people who know me well know that um, and not that I don't you know really get excited but just the frequency of the wave was really unusual and noticeable so I've been trying to think about like what is going on and I think part of it was the conditions of the world which are you know a little cuckoo we've talked about that before and also in the background I've been reading all these books I've been sort of a almost obsessed with learning about the history of cultures before patriarchy before Christianity before capitalism so my ancestors mostly come from Norway on my mom's side and Germany on my dad's side so my curiosity has been about like before Norway was a country like who were the tribal people who lived there before Christianity or Lutheranism came in same in Germany like who were the people before the before Germany was a country who were the tribes what was their in, what were their indigenous practices in sort of prehistory? And one book I've been reading lately, well, I've been reading two books. I might have mentioned one called The Goddess in Old, Goddesses in Older Women by Jean Shinoda Volant. I recommend it to everyone, especially if you are a woman over 50 or a man over 50 or anybody under 50. She talks a lot about different specific goddesses and archetypes of goddesses archetypes meaning like the sort of a set of characteristics that we're all born with that are universal but get activated in different people at different times or some people might identify with them more and other people might identify more with other archetypes um, but they're like frameworks of being maybe I'll say that are available to everyone and we kind of um, they get activated in different situations and different times in our lives so that had a lot of meaty stuff to chew on and also history of pre patriarchal societies that were mostly goddess worshiping or earth worshiping which is basically the same thing and then the one I'm reading right now is called The Chalice and the Blade by Rianne Eisler. She's trying to answer a question that I've had for since I was a teenager of like, why is there so much disparity in the world? Why are some people set on dominating other people? And why does it often look like it's the white people or I'm gonna say European people because I'm trying to get away from, like whiteness isn't really a thing. Um, I mean, it is a very active thing that has a lot of consequences, especially in American culture, but it's not real. It's just a artificially made classification. Anyway, she's trying to get at, like, are humans only warlike dominating creatures, or is there, has there been other ways of living in history? And so she is citing, doing a lot of research herself, but mostly from collecting other researchers work and she has done some of her firsthand work as well and it is often female archaeologists and historians who are looking at artifacts and seeing them going back to the seeing part that I was talking about about the museum it's often 
the women who are seeing things that have been interpreted in patriarchal masculine ways, but they're seeing it for what is in front of them. So for example, I was reading yesterday about the civilization on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean before it was conquered and influenced by warring tribes. And what existed there for thousands of years was a culture that based on the many, 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 many artifacts that they can find that are little um, sculptures and talismans and tools and, and pottery and all these different things that they can find, they're uncovering a tons of art, murals, sculptures, and so, so, so much of it is of the female figure. And a lot of it is also of nature. But when maybe decades or even centuries worth of male archaeologists looked at these same things, looking through the lens of what they know, what we all grew up in, which is a worldview that says that men are the top of the hierarchy, and especially white men are the are the tippy top. What the men interpreted was either that these figures were some kind of like obscene sexualized objects meant for men's pleasure or the fact that there were so many of them and there and that female leadership seemed so present. It must have been because most of the men were at sea, and so the women were left to kind of fend for themselves. You know, they're interpreting it in ways that patriarchy sees, but not facing what is obviously in front of their eyes, which is an absence of weapons and war toys, a plethora of art and a focus on beauty technology that is advanced in their architecture and sanitation and governmental structures and a lack of an extreme hierarchy, an impression that people's needs were met, like not a big difference in the types of housing that were found. There's areas where there will be a there will be some male figures, but they're either on the periphery or they're surrounding a female, and but in a peaceful way, not in other ways that my mind just conjured. And so this is a case of when you take everything that you have accumulated, all your accumulated knowledge about the world, and apply it to this thing you're looking at, it can actually cloud you from seeing the truth of what's in front of you which is piles of evidence that we human beings, people like you and me, thousands of years ago, were able to live side by side in a culture, in a civilization where our needs were met, where women had power in the society, but not in a hierarchical, I'm gonna dominate all the men, it was an egalitarian society that venerated the power of the female body to be the vessel of life, 
which is pretty important when you're a culture and you want to continue as a people. And I look at some of this stuff and I'm like, duh, how could people, especially those living close to the earth without all the layers of, you know, so many walls and houses and electricity and indoor plumbing and heating where we really don't have to go outside if we don't want to. Like if you're living off the land, what you would see all around you is this gift of life from the earth that is giving you the water that you need to live and the food that you need to live and the clothing and the materials for shelter. And then you would notice that women are the bearers of life and have the ability in their bodies to create new life with the help of men because we can't really do it without the participation of men. And how would you not just completely honor and venerate that? So when I read this, I bring up these books in the context of my up and down emotional you know, waves that I was on, this roller coaster, because reading this, at, which lands on me as like, of course, like how, how did I get to be age 58 and not know about these cultures? In Europe, no less, you know, we, we know increasingly about egalitarian societies in the Americas and other places around the world, indigenous cultures, but this also was a thing in Europe. And maybe like Celtic culture, which is which only came into consciousness under the word pagan in Christianity, which was pretty synonymous with evil, backwards, you know, everything that you should not be. So I guess when these other ways of living were alluded to or kind of snuck up to the surface, they were very much disregarded as um, not anything that we could learn from. So I find it really inspiring to learn about these cultures that show that people have the ability to respect all genders and live together peacefully. Then I look at where we are today and how far we are from that worldview. And it, it's devastating to my soul. And that's what brings me to tears sometimes is just like, we are so lost as a culture. And yet, knowing that these things existed, that people have lived this way, there's evidence of it. It does make me kind of mad that this book I referenced, The Chalice and the Blade, was written in 1987. So it was the year I graduated from college. So I forgive my college ed education for not including it because, you know, it was new, although based on research that was decades older and maybe centuries. And I know it takes cultures a long time to absorb new information. And when a patriarchy has been in command for so many centuries, there's not a lot of incentive to say, oh, whoops, we, you know, maybe this is not the only way that humans have ever lived. So you just kind of push it to the side and keep going. But it gives me some hope knowing that this is a thing and I am trying to spend my energy imagining the world I want to live in and sort of imagining it into existence. And I think that if enough people 
do that and actively describe the world that we want to live in and visualize it, it will help us get there. And another thing that felt so devastating in those low lows recently was just the waste of human potential, all the women in history, all the marginalized groups in history whose brilliance and genius and talents and care and compassion and beauty was not allowed to flourish. Even now, that is the case because there are brilliant, beautiful, and by brilliant, I'm I'm not saying, you know, the one in a million genius, because I believe that everybody, every human has gifts to offer the rest of us. And some are more visible and obvious than others, but we all have them. And there is a lot of genius going to waste right now because people have to work three jobs to put food on the table while, you know, other people have so much money that it would take 8,000 lifetimes to spend it all. And it's ridiculous why those disparities exist. So it's a waste of human potential now and throughout the last few thousand years. And it's such a waste of energy on the power side too, where the people in power expending enormous amounts of energy on arming themselves and bombing each other and building fences and walls and trying to keep everybody else out and trying to hide their money and, and accumulate more and, and be afraid of everybody who might be after their power. What a waste of energy. And what I want what I want to tell those people, even though they're not listening to me, is life will be better for everybody. Like you will win. You men, I'll just say it's not only men, but you men in power, your life could be so much better if there was more equality in the world. You could be a whole person. You wouldn't have to hide the half the part of yourself that is soft and compassionate like you could be whole and it would be better you could like love people and be loved and and relax yeah so these are some of the things that i've been thinking about and i also i also want everyone to know while i'm you know pretending that i have everyone's ear in the world I also want people to not have to reach age 58 before they understand that there's a different way the world could be and that we've done it before. It is not the only way humans interact is not by dominating each other and forming hierarchies where the people at the top have complete control over the people at the bottom. And yes, we live in a democracy for now. Fingers crossed, and, and everybody please vote for democracy continuing in the fall. But even in our system where we do have rights, and this is why I have a podcast and speak, because I can, because right now I live so far still in a free country where even as a woman, I have the right to publish a podcast. I'm going to take it while I have it, and I want 
people to imagine that human nature does not equal warring, dominating, violence, grab what's yours and let everybody else fend for themselves. There is a way that humans can live and have lived. And I have a feeling that this was probably the main way that people lived for millennia, where the well-being of the group is the focus of communities. We know this from studying Native American communities who are still in existence today and taking care of each other. This is not only found in the island of Crete a thousand years ago. This is, this is now in places that live close to the land and understand the obvious, obvious reverence that humans have always had until recent times for nature and, and everything that she provides for us to live. And have recognized that the female in, our, in the culture, in humanity, is the human representation of nature because we have this ability to generate life. So let's keep the faith and because this is the full moon podcast, full moon episode, um, I'm always publishing it around the full moon. What I want to shed, because the full moon is a, is a time to recognize what you've accomplished, what you've learned, and also release what is no longer serving you. So what I want to release personally, and I, I have been in the process of releasing this for a few years, is the notion that human development or human evolution, even let's say, is on a straight upward trajectory of becoming more and more quote unquote advanced. I want to let that go. Nothing travels in a straight line. Nothing in nature works in a purely linear way. And it is full of variety and diversity. And we have made technological advances. I'm very thankful every time I take a shower that I can turn the knob and water comes out and it's hot. I love that and I appreciate all the technological development that went into making that happen in my house. And there is a lot to learn from cultures much more ancient than ours who knew a lot that we don't know and had a kind of wisdom that we have almost lost. It's not gone though, it's still there. We just need to remember it. So I think I'll leave it there. Thank you for listening. I will catch you next time on the Making Soul podcast. <laughs>